much to the worship team. Thank you to the kids. Uh, it's always a lot of fun for me when the kids get involved on a Sunday. So I'm grateful for the energy and the life and the vibrance. Thanks, Sean, that they bring to our church. Um, and that's what makes Palm Sunday fun, I think, is the kiddos. We are in the final week of our series uh, that we've gone through for Lent called Beautiful. And one of the reasons that we named it Beautiful is because of all the beautiful art that was created throughout the series. So we've had songs and poems uh, and paintings and pictures and mixed media art pieces. And then for this final week, in keeping with the theme of children, the kids actually made this piece. And so uh, your kids in Kids Connection traced their hands and colored their hands and did all sorts of uh, crazy wild designs and things like that. And then they all got... Uh, put together with the the Hosanna. And so that is a group art project, if I've ever seen one. And our admin here, uh, Kathleen, she didn't know when we hired her that uh, putting together art was going to be part of the job. But it was. Uh, And she, so she was in charge of actually making the hands stick and all that kind of stuff. So it took a lot of effort. This took maybe as much effort as all of these uh, combined. And so I thought, oh, get the kids to do something. It'll be easy. It was not easy. So, so thankful for the kids and the kids' leaders and then Kathleen who uh, did such a good job with this. Uh, if you have questions at any point during the sermon, uh, this is a thing that we're doing now. We've been doing it for a little while and I really enjoy it. So if you have questions about the passage or about the message uh, today, please, you can text that anytime during the sermon to that number, and that number will be on slides throughout our time together. Um, But I love to look at your questions and think through them, and uh, I talk through your questions and try to answer them as best I can in a video that goes on Facebook uh, midweek. And so if you have any questions that pop up, you can just text it right there, and uh, I will try to deal with that. But I just want us to engage critically uh, and think critically about God's Word and about the messages we receive, and hopefully that is a part of that. That, uh, critical thinking. So go ahead and send it in. It's all, it's uh, anonymous. I feel like I have to say this though, because somebody, if you're in my address book, it's not anonymous. I will know that it's you. Uh, and so I'm sorry. I'll delete you from my address book if you want, but that's, it's anonymous as long as you're not in my address book. <laughs> Uh, so this morning, uh, as I said, we are celebrating Palm Sunday, and uh, I love seeing the kids get involved. When I think of Palm Sunday, this is what I think of right here. That's my son Joseph, and uh, that was, I, I think, the first or second, maybe the second Palm Sunday that we ever celebrated together. It was his first Palm Parade. Uh, that was our church in Orange City. Look at that carpet. Oh my goodness. So red. And so this morning I actually dressed, I have a, a three-year-old, uh, Abram, and I dressed him in the same pants for this morning's Palm Parade. I said, so we got to do something the same here. So I just, I love Palm Sunday. I love it. And I love the, how the kids get involved. I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful time. It's one of the only uh, names for a Sunday that we even know. I, uh, you know, we don't have a name for the fifth Sunday of Epiphany. It's called the fifth Sunday of Epiphany. That's not special. Uh, but we have a name for Palm Sunday. This is actually something that the church thinks about and talks about. This is our part of the preparation for Easter morning, and, and it kicks off Holy Week. And it's such a great, wonderful time. The service is upbeat, the kids are involved, and we love it. We love Palm Sunday. And all those things are great. And I'm not going to say anything bad about any of those things. But I I hope that those things don't get in the way of us understanding the heart of what Palm Sunday is really all about and what the story of the first Palm Sunday was really all about. 
Because the truth about Palm Sunday, uh, like the truth about a lot of God's Word and a lot of things that happen in Scripture, is more complicated and more complex than we make it out to be sometimes. The truth about Palm Sunday is more complicated than just kids waving palm branches and doing a cute parade, which I love very much. But the truth about what this Sunday means goes deeper than all of that. Palm Sunday's celebrations tend to be upbeat, and certainly the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to crowds of people waving palm branches was upbeat. But there is an underlying melancholy to Palm Sunday, something that doesn't get uh, maybe clear to us as we shout Hosanna and we sing praises, but there's an underlying melancholy to all of Palm Sunday. Because the very same crowds that gathered around Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem, the very same crowds that came and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the very same crowds that came around and sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, those very same crowds just five days later are going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. Palm Sunday leads us to Good Friday. And for me this week, what I wanted to understand was how did that happen? How did the crowds so quickly change between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? And I think our passage for the day has insights into what happened and some insights into the situation. And so we're going to dig into Luke chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 28 and read through verse 41. And it will all be up on the screens this morning. After Jesus had said this, he has done some teaching. It's a terrible place to start a Bible reading after Jesus had said this. He's done some teaching. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks, and in in other passages they say, and also palm branches, that's where the Palm Sunday comes from, they spread their cloaks and palms along on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was in high school, uh, George W. Bush was the president. Yes, that's right. When I was in high school, George W. Bush was the president. For all you who are older than me, don't hold it against me. Um, And he was running for re-election. He was going for his second term. 
Uh, I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, and if you've ever been to Waterloo, Iowa, you know it's not a place that if you're from there, you want to be like, guess where I'm from? Waterloo, Iowa. It's like, it's Waterloo, okay? Uh, it's the kind of town that's best days are kind of behind it a little bit. Uh, it's connected to Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is cool and hip and happening, and, you know, they get all the attention because they have a college and stuff. Um, and so Waterloo's just not a destination location, it's, let's say it that way, not a destination location. So George W. Bush was running for re-election, and then news comes out that he is coming for a campaign stop in Waterloo. Not Cedar Falls. Oh, no. Waterloo he's coming to. He's coming to Waterloo. This is the president of the United States, and he is going to come to Waterloo, Iowa. This was a big deal. So the rally was going to be uh, at a minor league baseball stadium there in town. Don't think Principal Park. Uh, it's not like that. Think dirty river, you know, side uh, minor league stadium. But this is where it's going to be. It's the biggest venue in Waterloo. And uh, so he's coming. He's going to be at the minor league baseball stadium. And I remember going that day. I remember going because the president is coming to your town, right? And so I remember going to see. And the parking lot was packed. The parking lot was full and people had started to do that thing where you start just parking on grass wherever you can find it. They were parked everywhere. I remember the gates, there was just these lines at every gate for people trying to get in. You know, they got to go through the metal detectors and security and all this different kind of stuff. And it was just so crowded. There was people everywhere all over, a huge line. And once you got in, there was barely anywhere to sit. People were so excited that the president had come to their town. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is kind of like that event for people. People had heard about Jesus for a long time. They had heard about this guy named Jesus and the things that he had done for a long time. And as we read through the book of Luke, Luke is very careful in his narrative to point out that Jesus never goes to Jerusalem. The way that Luke is trying to tell this story is all leading up to this moment where Jesus will go to Jerusalem for the first time. And so the people there are hungry. They want to see Jesus. They feel like they have a right to see Jesus. Unlike Waterloo, Jerusalem was very important. And so they've been sitting thinking for years, why is Jesus not coming here? And so Jesus has been waiting to come to Jerusalem. And people, now that he's coming, the word is getting out. And they are lining the streets to see this guy. And there were rumblings among the people who gathered that Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah. That's why they say things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On his way uh, up to Jerusalem in chapter 18, we didn't read this, uh, but Jesus actually walks by a man who calls him son of David. And that, that doesn't mean much to us, but in those days, that was like a messianic term. You don't say that to somebody unless you think that person might be the Messiah. And people are thinking, this is the guy who has come to rescue us. That's the whole Messiah thing, is this is the man who is going to come and conquer our enemies. This is the man who's going to come alleviate our suffering. This is the man who's going to come and elevate us, God's people, back to our rightful place on the top of the world. This is the king that we have been waiting for. Hosanna, come, Lord Jesus. This is the king who is going to return us to glory. And they welcomed Jesus as their king. And that's exactly the way that Jesus rides in. This event, uh, maybe in your Bible, has the su subheading triumphal entry. This is called the triumphal entry. 
And uh, the thing about that is there are triumphal entries throughout history. This is not a unique, it's unique because Jesus did it, uh, but this is not unique. Alexander the Great, 300 years before this, had done a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem when he conquered the area. This is a thing that kings did. Justo Gonzalez says triumphal entries were common enough to be recognized by the early readers of the gospel and rare enough to retain their sense of the extraordinary. Since time immemorial, conquerors claiming a city would enter it in a procession. All along the way, the citizenry would shout acclamation and sing hymns in honor of the conqueror. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem both parallels such solemn entries and contrasts with them. Everyone involved in the scene understood that Jesus riding into Jerusalem was him expressing that he was the king. Everyone there, as they stood along the roads, understood what they were part of. They understood the moment that they were sitting in. They understood the symbolism of Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a king. But not everyone involved in that understood what the kingship of Jesus looked like. Like, like Justo Gonzalez points out, Jesus' triumphal entry was easily recognizable as just that, a king coming to signal a regime change. But Jesus' subversion of triumphal entries highlights how different his kingdom is from kingdoms of the world. This is the part of my sermon that I worry sounds like a seminary lecture, and you'll all fall asleep. So I'm going to walk around a lot while I say it so that it's more exciting. Um, Jesus' triumphal entry is almost satirical, not in a comedic sense, not in the way that he's like trying to be funny or making fun, but it's like he takes the things that triumphal entries have, like war horses and armies and processions of people, and it shows the military might of somebody, and he subverts all of that. Instead of riding a war horse, Jesus rides in on a donkey. Instead of riding in with an army behind him, Jesus rides in with a ragtag bunch of religious flunkouts, his disciples. These are the people, and this is the way that Jesus rolls into Jerusalem. And triumphal entries always proceeded down the road and ended at the temple, and then the conquering king would make a sacrifice at the temple. And when he makes a sacrifice at the temple, what he's saying is, the God of this area, okay, stands behind me. That's what it means when the king goes and offers the sacrifice at the temple. Jesus, and we didn't read this today, but Jesus takes his triumphal entry. The next thing that Luke says he does is he goes to the temple. But he doesn't offer a sacrifice. He kicks people out. He goes into the temple and he sees people selling wares and he sees people defiling what the temple is for, which is that people would have access to God. And he sees that they've, instead of having access to God, they've actually put up gates so that people can't get close to God. And instead of offering a sacrifice and saying, God is behind me in my regime change that I'm about to go through, instead of that, he cleanses the temple, he kicks people out, he turns over tables, he makes a big spectacle and a big scene. Instead, he keeps subverting all of the expectations that people would have for a king. So even as people are welcoming him as their king, Jesus is trying to show people that his kingdom is unlike any that they have ever seen before. At the end of our passage for the day, uh, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees, and he's trying to get them to see the same thing. He's trying to get them to understand that this is not like anything that they've seen or experienced before. 
So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, you need to rebuke these people who are shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees understand that what these people are saying is blasphemous. Because in their mind, Jesus is not the Messiah. And so for these people to be using messianic language about him is blasphemy. This is sacrilege. This is bad. And on top of that, they also know that this is a politically charged moment. They're saying to themselves, if Jesus rolls into Jerusalem and people say that he's the king, what is the actual king going to do? He's going to be mad, okay? The king is going to be very upset when he finds out that this guy has rolled in and is saying that I am the king. So they say, Jesus, you've got to shut these people up. They're being blasphemous and they're creating a political situation that we do not want to deal with. You have to tell them to stop. And what Jesus says to them is he's saying... This is bigger than what you understand. This is not a political coup. This is not me trying to say that I am better than Herod or better than Caesar. Jesus says what is happening here is beyond anything you've ever experienced before. And so when the Pharisees say, please stop your people from seeing these praises to you, Jesus says to them, even if they stopped, the stones would cry out instead. Jesus says, What's happening today is not a regime change. What's happening today is cosmic in its scope. What's happening today is going to change the course of the whole world. This is not the course of the Roman Empire. This is the course of the whole world. Jesus is trying to say, you guys don't get it. If they stop, the stones themselves will cry out because what's happening in this moment is that important. What's happening in this moment will change the world forever. It's so much bigger than what the Pharisees or the crowds who are welcoming Jesus understand. This king named Jesus and the kingdom he is bringing with him are unlike anything that they have ever hoped for or imagined. This isn't just about the future of Israel. It's about the future of the whole world. This isn't just about salvation for the Jews, which is how they would have understood what the Messiah had come to do, that the Messiah had come to save the Jews. Jesus is saying, this isn't just about salvation for the Jews. This is about salvation for the whole world. This is for everyone. This wasn't about conquering Rome and establishing the nation of Israel. This was about conquering death and establishing the kingdom of God, a kingdom beyond anybody else's imagination, beyond borders, beyond armies, the kingdom of God that transcends all other kingdoms. And that is something the Pharisees did not understand. And sadly, it's something that the crowds who were welcoming Jesus didn't understand either. The crowds who welcomed Jesus shouted Hosanna and laid palm branches and coats along the road. And what they wanted from Jesus was different from what Jesus had come to do. Their expectations of what Jesus was going to do for them were misplaced and out of touch with the thing that Jesus had really come to do. They wanted political freedom. They wanted military power. They wanted their immediate suffering alleviated. They wanted control. They wanted material prosperity and material blessings. They wanted to be at the top of the world. The trouble was, that's not what Jesus came to do. So when my wife and I got engaged, uh, we were in college. We didn't have any money. We still don't really have any money, but we had less money then. Uh, and so 
Kayla's parents said, we want to take you out to a nice dinner. You got engaged, we want to take you out to a nice dinner. That sounds great, okay? So we go back to Waterloo, which I've already talked about. Not a lot of great options, okay, in Waterloo. So we drove to Cedar Falls. Um, We drove to Cedar Falls. And there was a restaurant in Cedar Falls called the Broom Factory Restaurant. Now, I tried to find a picture of the Broom Factory Restaurant to put up on the screen, uh, but all I could find in high enough resolution to, like, actually show it was after they tore it down. That's foreshadowing to the story I'm about to tell you. Um, The rubble was high definition, but the pictures were not. So there was this restaurant. It was called the Broom Factory, and it was, like, famous. It was, like, a well-known, fancy restaurant in Waterloo, or in Cedar Falls. I had never been there. I had never been there. Kayla had never been there. Uh, this wasn't the kind of place that you went when you were in, in high school and college. I mean, this was supposed to be a nice, fancy restaurant. And so we were excited. Kayla's parents are going to take us. They're going to pay. Hey, that's the best. And uh, we're going to go. So on the drive over, Kayla's parents are talking about uh, the last time they had been there, you know, so many years ago and how wonderful it was. And my expectations are just like sky high for what this dinner is going to be like. I'm finally going to go to the broom factory. But as soon as we walked in, it became clear uh, that things had changed at the broom factory. Uh, there, was, there was a smell, um, not a yummy food smell, more like a musty uh, basement smell. Uh, the carpets were kind of dirty. There was a lot of light bulbs out. These were the last days of the broom factory. And there was rough stuff. Um, I ordered some fish because I was stupid, um, and it came. There was so many bones. And I get that fish have bones, but it was mostly bones, I think. Um, it wasn't good. The food wasn't good. Nothing was good. And, uh, and we were kind of disappointed. I think every, all four of us were disappointed by that. Our expectations, right, were, were here, and the reality was so far different from our expectations that all we could feel was disappointment about that. So the very last verse that we read today, verse 41 of our passage, it says, Jesus approached Jerusalem, and when he saw the city, he wept over it. That's the end of this, this scene where the people are shouting Hosanna and the people are laying palm branches and everything. This should be the best moment of Jesus' life. This right here should be the culmination of everything for him, right? This is like finally the people are realizing who he is, the Messiah, and they are celebrating him. This should be great. And as he approaches Jerusalem, it says, he wept. Even as they shout Hosanna and welcoming him as king, Jesus knew that the crowds did not understand who he was or what he had come to do, and it broke his heart. It broke his heart. Their expectations for what a king should be and what a king should do were out of step with who Jesus was and what he had come to do. They expected something from him, and those were the wrong expectations, and he knew that those expectations would ultimately lead to them rejecting him. He already knew how this whole thing was going to play out. He knew that the outsized and and out-of-step expectations that people had for what he was going to do were going to eventually lead to these same people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, because he was not going to do what they wanted. They couldn't see the kingdom that Jesus brought was so much better than the one that they had pinned their hopes on. And that's what makes Palm Sunday so complicated. That's why I have a sense of melancholy even as the kids run and and run with their palm branches and even as the picture of Joseph that I saw you, I have such beautiful memories of Palm Sunday. Even with all of that, that's why I still have this sense of melancholy. 
Because Jesus is the king. They were right when they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Messiah. You are the king that we have been waiting for. They were right when they said that. That's exactly who Jesus is. We should shout Hosanna. We should sing praises. We should line the streets and wave palm branches and parade with the kids to celebrate that we follow the king and we are part of his kingdom. Those are great and wonderful things. But as we do that, we need to remember what kind of kingdom it is. This isn't the triumphal entry of one who alleviates all of our suffering, but this is the triumphal entry of the one who suffers for us. This isn't the triumphal entry of the one who makes us rich and powerful, but the one who gave away all of his own power to die on our behalf. This isn't the triumphal entry of one who defeats his enemies, but one who calls his enemies friends. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself wanting a king like the one the crowds thought they were going to get. I want to sing Hosanna and ask for God to show up and make all the bad things in my life go away. I want to shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord while he shows up and gives me all the control that I want over my life to make things happen the way that I want them to happen. I'm singing praises so that I can get some material wealth and prosperity. I got to move up in the world. And we get so busy hoping and praying and asking Jesus to give us our idea of the good life one that has plenty of money and no suffering and enough control for us to feel happy. We get so caught up hoping for those things and pinning our hopes that Jesus would give us those things and and praying, God, just give me that idea of the good life, that prosperity that I crave so much. We get so focused on that that we miss out on who our king really is and what our king came to do. Jesus did not come to take away our suffering, but to redeem our suffering and give it purpose. Jesus didn't come to give us worldly power, but to demonstrate that true power is revealed in sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to conquer the forces that prevent us from having a life of ease and a life of prosperity. Jesus didn't come to do that. What he did was came to conquer death itself and give us what he called life abundant, life to the fullest, a kingdom of God life that transcends what our expectations or our desires for our current moment are because it points us toward heaven. It points us to that place where all the suffering will be alleviated and everything that we go through on this side of heaven will be for something on that side. Jesus came to give us that kind of life that takes our eyes off our current circumstances and helps us see the impact that he is having in the world around us. As Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, he says, they don't know the things that make for peace. That's verse 42. They don't know the things that make for peace. They don't know how to order their lives in a way that creates peace. Peace is what Jesus is offering us today. Not ease, not power, not health and wealth and prosperity. Peace. Peace in the knowledge that we are loved. Peace in the knowledge that death has no power over us. 
Peace in the knowledge that we are part of God's family. Peace in the knowledge that through Jesus we are citizens of his kingdom and we have access to an abundant life of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Peace as citizens of the kingdom of God. So as we walk through this week, maybe attend some services, maybe reflect in our own times of prayer and scripture reading, as we prepare our hearts for Easter morning, as we walk through this week and reflect on the last week of Jesus' life, my prayer for us is we would be people who know the peace that King Jesus came to bring on that first Palm Sunday as we remember his suffering and rejection on our behalf, I pray that we would sing Hosanna with a full understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do for Jerusalem, for us, and for the whole world. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know what you possibly could have been imagining or thinking on that first Palm Sunday. There, there at the moment that should have been the culmination of all of your ministry, coming to Jerusalem as king, and instead you're filled with sadness and you weep. Jesus, I am sorry for the ways that I shout Hosanna and expect you to be the king that will elevate my status or the king who will give me the things that I want, the king that will provide me with my idea of the good life, that I stand on the side of the road and I lay my palm branches out with an expectation that you showed up to fix everything for me. God, what does it mean that you suffer on our behalf? What does it mean that you didn't hide from the pain and the agony, that you didn't run from the rejection? God, what does that mean for us? That through what happened to you on the cross, we are healed. I pray that this week we would have have a, a vision for your kingdom, God. Holy Spirit, that you would fill us up and fill our hearts with a sense of anticipation for Easter morning, knowing not that it's this victory won uh, with no cost, God, but that it is a victory won through the suffering of the cross. And as we live our own lives, and as we follow you and do what you told us to do to pick up our own cross daily, I pray that we would have a kingdom vision for what you are doing and that we would live an abundant life, a life filled with peace, not ease, abundance, not prosperity, and that we would see ourselves as citizens of the kingdom that transcends all kingdoms. We love you, God. We love you and we are in awe of your love for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.